came up to me and he said, uh, he said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm doing well. He said, how you like in Springfield? I said, well, it's, it's different. It's a little different than Kansas City. Uh, we actually had professional sports teams up there, uh, the Royals and uh, the Chiefs. And so we're talking about that. And then he pulled me aside and said, come here for a second. He said, listen, you're in Springfield now. This is our city. This is our town. I want you to know, if anybody gives you any problems, you call me. If you need anything, you call me. If there's anything that my wife and I can do or our church can do for you, you call me. And that meant so much to me and my family because we were we were formerly working for my dad, for my parents as our pastor. So to come to a different city, a different place and have people tell me, hey, if anyone gives you trouble, have them call me and you call me. Uh, you're speaking our language because where I'm from, that's how you honor one another is you take care of each other. So thank you so much, even just for your a way of, of protecting me and my family personally. It's uh, it's meant a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen the mafia hat. No, I haven't. But uh, your pastor is amazing. And so I don't think we can we can over honor in these moments because we're just we're so grateful for you. And also, you've got an incredible youth pastor. I don't know if you know that, but Pastor Bear and Ruth, y'all are amazing. And I know that you just welcomed a new baby, obviously, into the family. So you're not sleeping right now, probably. You're exhausted. So welcome to the club. Um, it's uh, the great club to be a part of. But uh, love Pastor Bear and his wife. And he and I had the unique opportunity to go spend about a week overseas. We were in Kenya. We were working with uh, some organizations there. We were also in London, England for a day, working with our missionary there. In fact, the only Assemblies of God World Missionary that is in England right now is, is from our district. And we purchased a Speed Delight vehicle for them last year. So we got to spend a day with, with he and his, well, with him. His family was busy. They couldn't make it. But we got to spend a day with our missionary there. And uh, Bear and I got to see some parts of the world that we've never seen before. And I've been to Africa multiple times, but I've never even seen some of the places that we went. And really what we were there for, it was a vision trip to get to see what we've been investing to through Speed the Light. And uh, this church has been a huge part of that. The investment into missions that this church has made uh, through your leadership, through your youth pastor and the students has been phenomenal. We got to see self-sustaining water wells that we've been putting on Assemblies of God property in East Africa, which changes a community in an instant, in a moment. In fact, one of the communities that we were in, they had a young boy who was bitten by a black mamba snake. And on their way, taking him to the next village by foot, he died because they couldn't get there quick enough. We put a water well in their village. While we were there, we saw them digging for water. They were digging the, the hole, the borehole to get the water. They said now that there is water, it will change their community forever because this is the first time they've ever had clean water in the history of their village. And so now there will be more resources. There might even be vehicles that end up there to help take people to safe places when they have incidents and accidents like that. And not only that, but these water wells are put on Assemblies of God property. So we're plugging them into the church, building God's kingdom all over East Africa and all over the world as we continue to expand the work. And to be there with Pastor Bear was so much fun. We got some memories. We got some stories. We had a red spitting cobra in our camp one of the nights, and I did pick it up after it was dead. There's no way I'm picking that thing up when it was alive. But we saw all kinds of things, got to see a lion rip up another animal. Like It was amazing. But God was glorified, and we got to see people now receiving the gift of fresh water, but also receiving the gift of the living water of Jesus Christ. And that would not be possible without the generosity and the influence of this church. For every $25 we give to Speed the Light, we can actually provide clean water for an individual in East Africa for life. And so this church has just been a huge part of that. And we're so grateful that we got to go on the trip and got to see those parts of the, of the world and see what God is doing there. So thank you for sending your youth pastor. Thank you for believing in missions and for believing in students. Can you make some noise for your youth pastor one more time? Come on. We got to take moments and celebrate what God is doing. We got to celebrate the wins. We have to celebrate these moments because... 
when they come, it's a big deal and it honors the Lord. So thanks, Pastor Bear, for everything you do. And I'm just glad we get to be on the same team. Glad you're my friend. And also, uh, I do not fulfill the role of district youth director alone. I've got an amazing family, and uh, they are here today. Kids are in the kids' ministry. My wife's up here sitting on the front row. But for those of you who cannot or have not seen them, that's a picture of my family. My wife, Lauren's there sitting next to me. She is my greatest friend. Uh, she is uh, a gift to, to me from the Lord. And I really wouldn't even know what day it is half the time without her, if, if I'm just honest. She reminds me where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm just so grateful that that God blessed me with her. She is just the greatest. So Lauren, I love you. Thanks so much for being a part of all of this with me. And um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to be a part of this without you. And then we've got our amazing our amazing children. Our son right there in the middle. We can go back to that last that last picture. Our son right there in the middle. That's Jude. He is five years old, and uh, he is a wild man. But God's doing some really cool things in his heart and in his life. And even last night we were listening to a Bible story together and he was inviting Jesus into his heart for like the 50th time, which I'm totally okay with. And so just so glad that I get to be his dad and that he gets to be our son. He's our miracle child. And then our other miracle baby uh, who was, who was prophesied about before she was ever born is our, our daughter Quinn. She is 16 months old and that's a picture of Quinn right there. And some nights she doesn't sleep too well. Some days she doesn't nap real well. But when she looks like this, when you wake her up, you can't even be mad. Like, look at that face. Obviously, she's staying awake because she's interceding for us, right? She's asking that the Lord would bless us. I mean, look at her little praying hands and those two little teeth. My goodness. Um, she has me wrapped around her finger. So anything that she asks for, the answer is basically yes. And if I can't afford it, I'll just take money from Pastor Ron and I'll go and pay for it so that I can get her what she wants because uh, she's got me wrapped around her finger. And we're just we're so grateful that we get to be their parents and just honored, honored that we get to be a family and serve this district. But I do have a word that I believe God's put on my heart for this church today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get your Bible out. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter four, Matthew chapter four this morning. I promise it's in there. You'll find it. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you can't find it, your neighbor probably can. So make sure and ask them if you need some help. Matthew chapter four. And uh, just as you're as you're turning there and getting situated, uh, let me ask you this: How many of you in the room are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent in the room. Okay, keep it keep it up. Okay, that's how I know your parents because your hand was like shaking on the way up because you're so tired. Like you can always tell who the parents are because they're exhausted all the time. Uh, Pastor Bear, you understand now. You get this now. It's a new level of tired. Like you thought you knew what tired was. Now you know what tired is. Uh, my wife and I love being parents. It is an absolute joy. It's an adventure. But something that no one really prepared me for was just how difficult it would be to travel with small children. Traveling with children is not for the faint of heart. And uh, with what my wife and I get to do in serving this district, we do a a lot of travel, whether it be in the state or around the country to different missions and youth events. And uh, we were doing some traveling and we had the family with us and we were getting ready to jump on a plane and, and come home. And we had gotten to the airport early. And as Pastor Bear got to, got to see, when I'm in an airport, I stress out a little bit, okay? They call me Airport Austin when I'm in the airport because I'm just a little bit stressed. I like to get to the gate early. I like to be prepared. But we had gotten there early. Family and I had gotten there early. We had gone through security. We had been through the gauntlet. We had checked our large suitcases. We had got our boarding passes, like the whole thing. Finally, we had gotten to our gate. We'd gotten to the place where we needed to be to fly out. I had gotten my Starbucks. My son had spilt my Starbucks already. We were ready to go. He was now laying on the ground trying to eat the gum on the bottom of the armrest there in the terminal. Like this was a little while back. So he's a little bit younger. And so that's, that's the stage he was in right there. Like he was all in. He was all about it. And finally it's time to get on the plane. 
And so my family and I gather up all of our things and we, we go to the gate. We're getting ready to walk onto the jetway, which is like this long skywalk that leads you onto the plane. And just as we are about to scan our boarding passes and get on the jetway, there's a gate agent there who sees us and she says, hold on, what is that? And she points to this bag that I'm holding. I said, oh, this? She said, yes. What is that? I said, oh, this is a stroller. She said, you can't take that on the plane. I said, no, you don't understand. It's a travel stroller. See, it folds up into this nice little backpack. It goes on my back. It's it's made for traveling. It's FAA approved. It fits in the overhead compartment. Like, we're good. It's a travel stroller. She said, I'm sorry. That's not going on the plane. You're going to have to check that bag if you want to bring it on the plane. I said, listen, you really don't understand. We travel often, and we actually travel with your airline often, and we bring it with us. In fact, that's how we got it to this city in the first place. We brought it on the plane. It actually is made for flying. She said, I don't care what it's made for. You need to go over there to the ticket agent at that desk, and you need to have them put a red tag on it. It has to be checked. So finally, I backed off. I went over to this ticket agent. I walk over to this desk, and there's a ticket agent there, and I hold up the bag, and I said, "Uh, excuse me, I need to get this bag checked. So the man was there at the computer, and he looked up at me, and he said, you need to what? I said, I need to get it checked. He said, why do you need to check that bag? I said, well, your your friend over there at the, at the gate, she told me to come to you and have you put a red tag on it because it needs to be checked. He said, you should not have to check that bag. I said, exactly. That's exactly what I think. That's how I feel. Right? You're getting me now. So at this point, I'm thinking that me and my friend here, that we actually are friends. Okay, I'm thinking that he and I are forming a bond. He's in agreement with me that we are now forming an alliance and we're going to go over there and have an intervention with Lisa and convince her to let us take this bag onto the plane. That's the way I saw this thing playing out in my mind. Two minutes later, I had a red tag on the bag because my friend turned on me at the last second and made me check the bag anyways. Can't trust anybody in an airport. So we go back over to the gate. I hold up the bag kind of sarcastically. I show her we got the red tag. We walk onto the jetway. The bottom of the jetway, there's this pile of bags. I see the pile of bags. It is the bags that are being gate checked. I know what it's there for. I know why the bags are there. I know what it is. For some reason, I know your pastor would never do anything like this, but for some reason, when I got to the pile of bags that my bag was supposed to go on, I just kind of ignored it and walked onto the plane with the bag on my person. Lord's still working on me, but I get onto this plane. We get to our seats, put the bag in the overhead compartment. It fits like it's supposed to. We sit down in our seats, buckle our seatbelts. No sooner did we get our seatbelts buckled and did a stewardess halt the boarding for the entire plane, walk onto the plane, reach up in the overhead, pull our bag out, and walk off the plane with our bag in her hand. This was a frustrating moment for us, okay? I could just feel the tension rising. It seemed like we might be like two minutes away from being one of those viral news stories that shows up on your iPhone, right? Missouri couple thrown off of Southwest Airlines flight for arguing with stewardess over travel stroller. Like we were right there. That's how it felt. I mean, it had already been a stressful day. The kids, the plane, just it wasn't a good moment. It was frustrating. The reason why it was frustrating is because we had to check this bag there at the gate. And when you have to check a bag at the gate unexpectedly, what happens is you, you end up having to let go of something that you had every intention of holding on to. 
But something that we have to realize when traveling is that there will be moments during which the things that we're carrying simply cannot go with us where we're going. So we've got to be willing to let them go either permanently or temporarily in confidence that we will have them if and when we actually need them. I want to preach a message this morning, and the title of the message, if you're taking notes, is this. Checked at the gate. If you're writing notes, write that down. Checked at the gate. Checked at the gate. And the reason why I want to preach this specific message is because it's no secret that we have been in a very unique season in our nation and around the world. Things have not been normal as we know it the past couple of years. But even though we've been in a very unique season, I think God is just about to do a very unique thing by way of expanding his kingdom and growing his church to a degree and in a manner that none of us have ever seen before in our lifetime. And I really believe it. There are things that God wants you to do and there are places that God wants us to go. But we will never get where God wants us to go unless we're willing to let go of what he's asking us to let go of so we can pick up the cross that Jesus is calling us to carry. We've got to check some things at the gate. For some of us, it might mean one thing, might mean something different than our neighbor. For some of us, checking something at the gate might mean that we need to check our our time and our talents at the gate. Because maybe until now, we've been using our time and our talents for no other reason than to build our own influence and to build our own platform and to gain our own success or clout or to earn more money. Maybe we've been using the gifts that God gave us for no other reason than to glorify ourselves. Well, it might be time for some of us to let those gifts and abilities and that time go, giving it back to God, believing that God gave us the gifts so we could build his platform, not our own. That God gave us the time so that we could build his kingdom, not our own. So God gave us these things so we could make him famous, not ourselves famous. Some of us might need to check that at the gate. Letting it go, believing that God's going to use it to build his kingdom and allow us to be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. For others of us, maybe the thing that we need to check at the gate is our finances. Because maybe in this season, rather than us managing our money, our money has actually started to manage us. Maybe we have placed more faith in the money and the resource that comes from God rather than the one who actually gives the resource itself. Maybe today is the day that some of us are reminded that God can do so much more with our finances and so much more with our money than we could ever do if we kept it in our bank account. Today might be the day where we actually trust God with the thing that we are trusting in at the moment. It might be time to check our finances at the gate saying, God, if you want to expand your kingdom here or around the world using my finances, good. I'm all in. God, take what you want. I'm ready for what you want to do through me. Might be time to check that at the gate. For others of us, and this one's not as fun to talk about, But for others of us, maybe the thing that we need to check at the gate is actually our our dreams. Do I believe that God puts dreams in our heart? Absolutely. Do I believe that God puts passions in our heart? 100%. He gives us ideas and vision and dreams. Absolutely. But for some of us, the dream that we've been dreaming for our life, it's not a God dream. It's a me dream. And it's not a dream that God wants us to have because he knows that that dream would soon turn into a nightmare and would actually derail us from the destiny that God had for our life in the first place. Some of us need to be reminded today that God's plan for our life is so much better than our plan for our life. And he can dream something up so much greater than we ever could. And it might be time to trust him with the dream we've been dreaming. I promise you this. God wants to order our steps. See, We make our plans. Scripture says in his heart, a man makes his plans, but the Lord orders his steps. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have ordered steps than made plans. 
made plans, they make sense before they happen. Ordered steps make sense after they've happened. And we look back and say, look how faithful God has been in the good times and the bad. He's been faithful to me. Might be time to check our dreams at the gate. Because if it's not God's dream, it should not be our dream in this season. And others of us, maybe the thing that we need to check at the gate is actually, it's not a thing that we need to leave at the gate at all, but it's something we need to put in the trash before we ever get on the jetway. Because maybe the thing we need to let go of is a bad attitude or a a secret sin or conversations that we never should be in in the first place. Maybe it's a lack of integrity on the job site. Maybe it's a lack of character in dealing with finances or whatever it might be. It's between you and the Lord. But I do believe that some of us, right now we've been bound by the sins that nobody else knows about. And today might be the day. This might be the week where we let that go because I promise you where God is taking us, those things have no business going. God wants to take you places that you could not even imagine. He wants to have you saying things you didn't think you could say and doing things you never thought that you could do. And I promise you it's not worth it to let things get in the way that should not be in our life in the first place. Listen, I really believe this for myself and every other person in this room. I really believe that the difference between those of us who will get where God wants us to go and those of us who won't is our willingness to let go of the things God's asking us to let go of so we can pick up what God's asking us to pick up. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read a passage of Scripture. We're going to start in verse 18. Not a very long passage. Matthew 4 verse 18 says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Say that with me out loud. Say he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. This is not a very long passage of Scripture. In fact, it's pretty short, but it's a very profound passage of Scripture. And the reason it's so profound is because in these moments that we just read, these are the moments in which Jesus was calling his first disciples. These are the moments in which Jesus was recruiting people to be a part of his team. He was calling people to himself so that they could go and change the world and so that the church could be established and that more people could come to know Jesus. This was the moment where Jesus was beginning to call people to himself so he could start the ministry that God had called him to start. This was that moment. But I think if we're to understand the moment completely, we need to understand the context and what was going on. See, just before this, because we know that Matthew's gospel is the most chronologically accurate, just before this, we're told that the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, had been falsely accused and thrown into prison. And Jesus... Remember, he was fully God and fully man. So being fully God, Jesus knew that his cousin who was falsely accused and thrown into prison, Jesus knew that he would not be coming out of prison. Uh, Jesus knew that once he went into prison, he would die there. He would be beheaded. He would be mistreated. Jesus knew the end of how this story, this portion of the story was going to play out. Being fully God, Jesus already knew what was going to happen in that situation with his cousin, the individual who he was close with. But he was also fully man. And so I think it's safe to say that Jesus probably felt many of the things that a man, a human, would have felt in those moments. It's safe to say that Jesus was probably frustrated. He was probably hurt. 
maybe angry. He was sad. He was dealing with everything that any of us would have probably been dealing with emotionally, knowing that someone close to him had been falsely accused, thrown into prison, and would die. See, the situation in Jesus' life had just changed. The heat had been turned up, and Jesus knew it. This was a turning point where the pressure put on him by people around him was beginning to change. The situation had changed just like that. But even though the situation had changed, his mission hadn't changed. See, Jesus still came to this earth to testify to the truth. Jesus still came to this earth to call his disciples to himself, to go to the cross and die for the sins of all mankind, and to go to the grave and then walk out of that tomb after three days, defeating death, hell, and the grave. So even though the situation changed, Jesus' mission had not changed. I don't know if you've noticed this, but our situation has drastically changed over the last two years. The situation that we all find ourselves in, that our nation and our world find itself in, has drastically changed. But even though the situation has changed, our mission hasn't changed. You and I are still called to love God, to love people, and to help others find and follow Jesus. So even though our situation is different, our mission remains the same. Jesus' mission remained the same, so he was on the move. The Bible tells us that he was walking beside the Sea of Galilee and that he saw two brothers. He noticed them. If you follow the life and the ministry of Jesus, what you realize is that Jesus had this acute awareness about him, that Jesus just noticed things that were going on around him. In fact, over 40 times in the Gospels, the NIV tells us that Jesus saw something or noticed someone or picked up on something that was going on around him. Jesus had this acute awareness given to him by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus wasn't just a God of awareness. He was also a God of action. What that means is that when Jesus saw something, he usually did something about what he saw. And he set an incredible example and gave us a great reminder, and it's this, that when the Holy Spirit gives us awareness, he never gives us awareness on accident. The Holy Spirit always gives us awareness on purpose. That when God reveals something to us, it's because he wants us to take action about what he's revealing. I showed you my son earlier, five-year-old Jude. Love him so much. And he's, he's growing up now. He's starting to get better behaved. But uh, age three and four, he needed the Lord to work in his life. Okay, that boy was a wild man. I mean, he's, he's getting better, but he was a wild man. And he was good at a number of things. One of the things he was good at was destroying my house and my car and my clothes and everything that we own. But he was really good at destroying our house, making messes. And so he would do this thing where he'd get out his, his cars, his Hot Wheels cars. He'd pour them out and he'd be playing with his Hot Wheels cars. It would last about five minutes. And then he would get bored with that and he'd want to go get his action figures out. So he'd run and he'd get this container of action figures and he'd get ready to dump out the action figures. If I was in the room, I would look at him and I'd say, Jude, hold on, bud. Listen, before we dump out the action figures, I'm going to need you to clean up the Hot Wheels cars, okay? Before you make mess number two, I need you to clean up mess number one. Can you do that for me? And he would do this thing that would make me feel very respected in my own home. He would look down at the Hot Wheels cars, and he would look up at me, and then he would pour out the action figures right in front of my face. I would get frustrated. 
But in my frustration, the Lord had to remind me that what my son does to his earthly father, I do to my heavenly father all the time. Because so often, God will give me awareness about a situation, and I will meet that awareness with indifference or ignorance, so that I would end up doing what I want to do when I want to do it, the way that I want to do it. But if I'm going to be the man God has called me to be, if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we have to come to a place in our faith that when the Holy Spirit gives us awareness, we meet it with action. So we start doing something about what God is showing us. Let me ask you this. What are you doing about what God has been showing you? What are we doing with what the Lord has been showing us? Because I really believe that God wants to do miracles in each and every one of our lives. The Lord doesn't want to do miracles in some of our lives. The Lord doesn't want to do miracles in only the pastors and ministers and the ushers and the worship team. No, God wants to do miracles in and through every single one of our lives. But the miracles that we hope to see happen in our lives are going to be contingent on how we steward the awareness that God gives us. The miracles that you hope to see take place in your life, in your family, in your business, at your job, in your ministry, the miracles we hope to see happen will be contingent on how we steward the awareness God gives us. What does it mean? That means that what we do with what God shows us matters. What we do with what God reveals to us matters. Because here's the truth. We are not going to be accountable for what God has shown our neighbor. We're going to be accountable for what God has shown us. What are we doing with what God is showing us? Jesus, he was a man of awareness, yes, but also of action. So that when he saw something taking place that needed his attention, he gave it his attention. He gave it his action. And because of that, he was on the move, noticed that there were people out in this boat, two individuals. The Bible tells us that he said, hey, come follow me. He yells out to them or calls out to them in a voice loud enough for them to hear, come follow me. Fellas, come follow me. Had there been ladies in the boat, he would have said, fellas, ladies, family, come follow me. Now, in our culture, we are used to this. In 2022, Western civilization, we're used to this. We are used to coaches recruiting players. We are used to colleges recruiting students. We are used to, used to bosses recruiting employees. Right? We are used to businesses recruiting people to be a part of what they're doing. We're used to that. This was ancient rabbinic culture that we're talking about. In their culture, the norm would have been that if you wanted to follow after someone, you as the follower made a decision, I want to follow them. I want to model my life after them. I want to live near them. I want to learn from them. I want to be in fellowship with them. I want, I want to be around him or her. I want to follow them. In their culture, the norm would have been for the follower to first choose the leader. But Jesus flips the script. And rather than the follower first choosing the leader, we see that the leader first chooses the followers. And he said, I want you to be a part of my team. I want you to walk with me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to do life with me. I want you to be a part of my team. I'm choosing you. And church, just as Jesus chose them, I believe that Jesus has chosen you for such a time as this. It is not an accident that you and I are on the earth during the season that we are. Because God wanted us here now. Before he ever formed us, he knew us. And before we were ever on this earth, we were already on God's mind. He chose us for this season. And I know that with everything that's gone on recently and everything that's currently going on in our world, 
it's easy for many of us to feel as though we've been forgotten by God. And if we were honest, probably a lot of us in this room would say, yes, I, I feel as though God has forgotten me. Well, if nothing else, I came to remind you today that you are not God's forgotten. You are God's favored. You're not his rejected. You are his anointed. And you are not God's mistake. You are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the good work which he prepared in advance for you to do. I'm telling you, you were made for this moment. You were born for this. You were chosen for this. For such a time as this. Just as Jesus chose them, he has chosen you. Think about it. With everything going on, the Lord thought that we had what it took with the power of his Holy Spirit to change the world and do what he called us to do in this season of life. He sees things in us that we obviously don't see in ourselves. He chose them. He said, come follow me. And notice what he says next. He said, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers. I will make you. I will make, I will, I, Jesus said. Here's what he didn't say. He did not say that culture would make you fishers of men. He did not say the government will make you fishers of men. He did not say your sexuality will make you fishers of men. He did not say your bank account or your success will make you fishers of men. He did not say your accomplishments or your influence will make you fishers of men. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. What did that mean for the disciples? It meant that they could not look to culture. They couldn't look to government. They couldn't look to influence or their bank account. They could not look to their left or to their right, but they had to look to Jesus. It meant that if they were going to live the life they were always meant to live, they had to look to the one who was calling them to live it. They had to look to Jesus. As for the disciples on their journey of faith, what they focused on would determine their future. What they looked at actually mattered. See, Jesus wasn't joking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, when he said that the eyes are the lamp of the body. If a man's eyes are healthy, his whole body will be full of light. Jesus wasn't joking. Because in this life, the journey of faith, our gaze guides us. It guides us. Our gaze guides us on the journey. I'm going to invite the worship team to, to join me if they could. About two years ago, when the uh, the pandemic really first hit and we were all under the stay-at-home order, you all remember that? Remember those days? Seems like it was a decade ago. Nope, it's only two years. About two years ago, I realized after a couple of days in to the stay-at-home order that I was going to lose my mind if I did not start doing something physically active. Like I just could, I couldn't handle it. Okay. I've got a lot of energy, obviously, and I had to have a way to get it out. <laughs> I knew I was going to lose my mind. And so I started, I started doing this thing called distance running. <laughs> Some of you are like, pastor, that sounds awful. Like, I don't think you heard the Lord on that. I started doing distance running. I, I started to enjoy it and I would do it regularly. And I found that it was enjoyable and, and it would actually help me emotionally and even spiritually. And I loved it. I wouldn't consider myself a real runner. I don't wear short enough shorts when I run to be a real runner. Like some of those cross-country runners, come on, they wear shorts that nobody should be wearing. We can just go ahead and be honest in church today. Like nobody should be wearing those, okay? So I wouldn't consider myself a real runner, but I enjoy it and done it quite a bit since then. And the more I got into it, I started uh, researching what world-class runners do when they run. So I started watching some videos of runners and how they train and different things that they do. And if you notice, world-class runners, first of all, they're a lot faster than me or most of us in this room. 
They're in really good shape. Muscle tone is there. They've, they've got nutrition, all of those things. Their stride is just perfect. They're running like a gazelle almost. I mean, it's just crazy. You can see their muscles firing at a crazy rapid rate, just moving, moving, moving. And a lot of them have different heights and different things, so there's a slight difference in a lot of their stride. But when you watch a world-class runner run, every single one of them has this thing in common. Every single one. When they are running, their head is completely still and their eyes are looking straight ahead. They're not looking to the left. They're not looking to the right. They're not looking down. Their head is completely still. They're looking straight ahead at the horizon. The reason for this is because there have been studies done to try and find the connection between posture and performance when the body is in motion. And what the studies have found is that the average human head weighs about 12 pounds when sitting on the neck and on the shoulders. That's how much the head weighs. And because of our relationship to gravity, what happens is when someone is running, for every one inch that their head is tilted down, it actually adds an extra 10 pounds of pressure to their neck and their back and their, up and their shoulders. So what happens is you get a lot of inexperienced runners who get so caught up looking down at their own feet that they end up carrying a bunch of weight that they were never designed to carry in the first place. And it keeps them from getting where they were trying to go when they were trying to get there. But if they would get their head up, they would be so much more efficient on the run and they would get where they're trying to go when they're trying to get there. And it's not just true in a marathon. It's also true in this marathon called life that if we would get our head up and fix our eyes on Jesus. We would get where he wants us to go, when he wants us to get there, doing what he's called us to do. But we've got to look to Jesus. We cannot look to the left or to the right, and we cannot look down. We've got to look to Jesus because our gaze guides us. I love what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off everything that hinders us, the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with perseverance that has been marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. We've got to look to Jesus. Listen, there is a life that we are all meant to live, but we cannot live the life we were always meant to live unless we look to the one who's calling us to live it. We've got to look to Jesus. These men they had to look to Jesus in the midst of everything that was going on. Even when Jesus became so popular, people wanted to make him king. They had to take their eyes off the throne of the world and look to the king of the world. His name was Jesus. They had to look to Jesus. They had to focus on him. He says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now again, if you've grown up in church you probably have a context for what that statement means. I grew up in the greatest children's ministry in the world, so I know what fishers of men meant from the time I was little. I knew exactly what it meant. We did the puppets and all the stuff about fishers of men. I, I knew what it meant. A lot of us, if you grew up in church, you know what it means. It means that you reach people with the truth of Jesus and make them disciples. They'll follow after you as you follow Jesus. Reaching people. When the disciples heard this, understand, this had never been said before. This was the first time anyone had ever made this statement. No one knew what this meant. 
No one had a full context for what this actually meant. There was no context. It had never been said. So when Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, there's no way they could have known everything that Jesus was calling them to do. There's no way they could have known everywhere he was calling them to go or what he would have them be a part of. There's no way that they fully understood the call of God at that moment. But even though they didn't understand, they still obeyed. They didn't fully understand, but they fully obeyed. I think that's something that we need to get better at, is obeying before we understand. Understanding, that can wait. That can come later. Obedience cannot wait. Comprehending all that God's asking us to do, that will come later. But complying with the Word of God, that has to happen now. Back in the 1940s, there was a 15-year-old. His name was George. And George lived in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, he had awesome parents. He was close to his parents. He would have considered his dad his best friend in the world. But one day, George came home from school as a teenager, and he found that his, his dad, his best friend, had taken all of their money, taken their car, left him and his mom to pursue a relationship with another woman in another state, left them with basically nothing. George was devastated, obviously, because this was his best friend. This was the father of their household, the leader of their home, gone. But George began to develop some learning issues and learning disabilities because of everything that he had been through. And in high school, his teachers said that they were just passing him on to the next grade because he was too stupid to learn. He couldn't comprehend the material that they were teaching at the pace they were teaching. So they said, we, we don't have time to teach you. We're going to pass you. But know this, you're not smart enough to learn. We're just going to pass you anyways. And not only that, but George developed a severe stuttering problem. So whenever George would have a conversation or try to have a conversation, he would stutter and stammer and fall over his words. Couldn't even have a solid conversation with anyone. George graduated high school, and from the outside looking in, it didn't look like his life was going anywhere fast because of a lot of the challenges that he was dealing with. And his mom started inviting him to church. And she kept inviting him, and he just kept saying no. She'd say, come on, George, come to church with me. And he'd say no. Come on, George, come to church with me. And he'd say no. And finally, she annoyed him so much by inviting him to church. He said, I'll go to church with you. I'll go to your stupid church. Those are his words. I'll go to your stupid church if you never invite me to church again. Deal? I never want to be invited again, but I'll go once. George goes to church on a Sunday night. The end of the service, the pastor gives an altar call and somebody stands up in the back row and walks down the aisle, gives their heart to Jesus. It's George. But not only that, but the night that he gave his heart to Jesus, he also sensed that the Lord was calling him into ministry to be a pastor. Well, George didn't know the second thing or the first thing about being a pastor. He didn't even know what that meant. All he knew is that he was too stupid to learn and that he couldn't form a good sentence. So he thought if it involved preaching, there's no way he could do it because there's no way he could ever be used in a communicative profession. No way. But he started applying for Bible colleges, and finally there was a Bible college that actually accepted him after trying a few others. It was in Springfield, Missouri, called Central Bible College. They accepted him, and he showed up for college, and George began to excel in school once he got to college. And he actually met an incredible girl there he would end up marrying after they graduated. And George would end up graduating Central Bible College with the highest GPA in the history of the college. God had healed his mind because he had submitted to the will of the Lord. 
But not only that, he also went on to get a master's degree and a doctorate degree, and he went to travel the world teaching and preaching pastors at the master's and doctoral level, literally all over the world for decade after decade. And he ended up becoming an incredible preacher of the gospel, one of the greatest that I have ever heard. So God didn't just heal his mind, he also healed his mouth and allowed him to preach the gospel so clearly that people all over the world would come to know Jesus. He ended up moving to Kansas City and building one of the greatest churches in the Midwest. And this year we will celebrate my grandfather, Dr. George Westlake Jr.'s 91st birthday. And he's still preaching the gospel and teaching people to this very day. Still one of the smartest biblical scholars I've ever met in my life. And the reason it happened is because he said yes to Jesus before he understood what Jesus was asking him to do. He didn't need to understand all the details. He just said, yes, Lord, whatever it means, the answer is yes. We don't have to understand to obey. Sometimes it means letting go of what we think we know, letting go of what we think we need, letting go of what we're carrying. Checking some things at the gate because we know God wants to take us somewhere. Because we know God's got a future for us. Because we know God's got something for our family or for our business or for our job or for our church. Knowing that God's got some things he wants to do, but it's going to require open hands so we can carry the cross that Jesus is calling us to carry. It's going to require us checking some things at the gate. Just stand to your feet all over this place today. Because we can tell testimony after testimony, story after story. of Great leaders and people who have laid something down for the sake of the gospel. There's heroes of faith all throughout this room who have done great things for the kingdom and have had to let some things go so they could let God do what he wanted to do. But the greatest example that anyone in this room will ever see is Jesus Christ himself. Because on the night before he was crucified, Jesus began checking some things at the gate. The night before he was crucified, Jesus took 11 of his disciples. There were 12, but one of them had already deserted him. He took 11 of his disciples across the Kidron Valley, walked into a garden called Gethsemane. He left eight of them there at the gate and took three of them deeper into the garden with him. Once he got into the garden, he stopped, kept them there, and took about 25 steps in the opposite direction. He knelt down to the ground and called out to his heavenly father. And to summarize what Jesus said to his heavenly father, he basically said, Lord, if there's any other way to have me pay for the sins of all mankind, let's go that route. (laughs) If there's any other way to pay for the sins of all humanity, let's go that route. But God, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. Heavenly father, your will be done. Most biblical scholars believe that that is the moment in which Jesus felt the weight of the world's sin fall on his shoulders. He checked his comfort at the gate right then and there. Soon he would check his freedom at the gate because a detachment of soldiers would come and they would arrest Jesus, binding him in chains. Then Jesus would go on to check his priesthood at the gate because Jesus, the heavenly high priest, was taken to the house of the earthly high priest for questioning and he allowed it to happen. Then Jesus... He would check his dominion at the gate because Jesus, the only righteous judge, would be led to the place of Pontius Pilate and would be asked to stand on the stone pavement while Pontius Pilate, the unrighteous judge, would sit in the judge's seat judging Jesus, the only righteous one. Then Jesus would check his kingship at the gate 
allowing him to put a crown of thorns on his head and mock him for being a king, even though he really was the king of the world, the king of kings. But he checked it at the gate. Then Jesus would go on to check his very life at the gate because he'd be taken and nailed on a cross on a hill called Calvary. And he would give his very life, giving his life so that other people could have it because he would go to the grave, but he would not stay there because after three days, he would walk out fully alive, defeating death, hell, and the grave itself so that we could have new life in Christ. See, Jesus checked it all at the gate, not so he could get where he wanted to go, but so that we could get where God wanted us to go, which is in eternity with him and in relationship with him right here on this earth. He checked it at the gate so we could live the life we were always meant to live. If we're going to live the life that we were meant to live, we've got to let some things go and let God do what he wants. Bow your heads, close your eyes all over the